The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Joe Biden promised to deliver 100 million vaccine doses into the arms of Americans in 100 days. And we are, I am thrilled to say, on track to dramatically surpass that. And at the same time, we are seeing coronavirus cases continue to decline uh, very quickly, faster than than many people expected. So let's run through the numbers. Then I have other covid updates. We did this each of the last few weeks. I didn't think that many people would would actually like this, but it turns out a lot of people aren't following the day to day of what's going on with the virus, understandably. And a ton of people wrote in saying, actually, the summaries are useful in terms of where we are. So let's jump right in with one disclaimer. I'm going to give a lot of optimistic news in this segment. Um, It should not be used to encourage us to stop being careful. The optimistic news should tell us, let's keep being careful, not go crazy. And if we do that, then there is hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel. And yes, I will address the variants, of course. All right. So let's start with cases. Coronavirus cases on average peaked on January 11th at about two hundred and fifty five thousand cases per day. An insane number. The good news is that since that peak, cases have declined a whopping 64% where we are now averaging 92,000 cases per day. Now, this is all perspective. At one point a year ago, when Dr. Fauci said, not a year ago, ten, eight months ago, seven months ago, when Dr. Fauci said, if we aren't careful, we could get up to 100,000 cases per day in the fall. And a whole bunch of people said that's impossible. And of course, Dr. Fauci was right. We weren't careful and we actually got not to 100,000 cases a day, not to 200,000 cases a day. We actually had 300, 300,000 cases a day. Uh, we, we had 300,000 cases on one day uh, in the fall. We are now back down to 92,000 cases per day. But what matters is the rate of decline down 64% in just 35 days. You love to see it. Let's keep it going. Now, in the meantime, deaths, which lag cases by three to four weeks, are finally starting to come down, peaking at an average of about thirty five hundred deaths a day in the United States, more 20 percent more than a 9-11 a day, now down 25 percent to a daily average of about twenty six hundred deaths per day. Still an unconscionable, horrifying number. But we are seeing the improvement and the improvement in deaths should track the decline in cases as well with about a three to four week lag. Now to vaccination, Joe Biden promised a million doses a day. The U.S. is now exceeding that by a full two thirds with one and two thirds million vaccine doses per day going into people's arms with again new record days this weekend, 2.2 million doses administered on Saturday, 2.2 million doses administered on Sunday. These are fantastic numbers, but they are not enough because at the current rates, we wouldn't hit 50 percent immunity until June 28th. We wouldn't reach 70 percent immunity, a key number until September 5th. So as I've said before, 
I didn't come up with this. Medical experts did. The ideal would be to get to 3.5 million doses per day. That would uh, dramatically accelerate our progress. It's not impossible that we would get there with a third vaccine and hopefully with a fourth vaccine. Now, let's talk about vaccines and variants. Once again, we continue to learn more and more about this. We have two vaccines currently in use in the United States, the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine. These are both two dose vaccines with Moderna. You have 28 days between doses with Pfizer. You have 21 days between doses. Okay, we are close to approval for a third vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. That is a one dose vaccine that will dramatically simplify logistics and uh, could get us could get us to 2.53 million vaccines a day uh, regularly. Fourth vaccine has the possibility of getting us to three and a half million vaccines a day. Meanwhile, what we know about the effectiveness of these vaccines is stunning. It, it's not a miracle. It's science. So I don't want to use the word miracle, but the numbers appear almost miraculous. Israel has done an incredible job with vaccination. They're already vaccinating younger people. And uh, the deal they made with Pfizer is that they will open up their data. So Pfizer can get more information about how the vaccine works in reality. One study of the vaccinated Israeli population found that in the real world, the vaccine has 94 percent efficacy at preventing symptomatic disease and a 92 percent drop in severe disease. Listen to these numbers. A study of five hundred and twenty five thousand vaccinated Israelis found only 500 of them got the virus. That's 0.1%. 525,000 people, 500 get the virus with the vaccine. Um, and that was including some of them got it between doses. They weren't yet at full immunity. Of the 500 people that got the virus, four of the 500 had what you would call a serious case. Four. And none of them died. These are incredible, incredible numbers. The vaccine appears to be as good in real life as it was in the phase three trials. Now, it's not all great news. We are in a fight against these variants that are spreading. The good news in that fight is that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines appear really effective against the UK variant and the Brazilian variant, and they appear less but still quite effective against the South South Africa variant. It's just a matter of speed. The faster we vaccinate, the more we prevent mutation, the more we prevent the spread of the variants, which are um, slightly stronger against the vaccine. If you imagine the variants in a fight against the vaccines and the more we can control this. So if we can keep this going, we are going to have a very different situation statistically in the United States by April 1st and again, a different situation by May 1st. If we can get beyond one and two thirds million vaccines a day, if we can get to two point five steady or three, we are looking at moving up the date at which 70 percent of the country will be vaccinated from early September into August, possibly even into July or according to some models, even late June, if we can really quickly ramp up vaccination. So let's keep tracking numbers. The milestone I'm next looking for is when we get under 50,000 cases per day. That might only be weeks away. If we can keep going, it could be longer. We will soon see. And fortunately, 
vaccine hesitancy. I won't dive into that a lot now because we did that last week. Vaccine hesitancy also continues to go down. All good things. Um, we are hoping also for approval on the vaccination of uh, kids, um, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old uh, by early summer, optimistically. And that will also be a big factor. So a lot of good things happening. Not the time to go crazy, not the time to go crazy. Light at the end of the tunnel. We see it. OK, let's talk about Joe Biden on immigration. Now, Joe Biden has made it clear that the immediate next priority is covid relief. I've already criticized and said it should have been done already. It hasn't. We're hoping that it gets done soon. Very soon thereafter, immigration is going to be high on Joe Biden's list. Now, much of what Joe Biden wants to do on immigration cannot be done by, by executive order. One bit of good news is that Joe Biden has canceled the national emergency order that Donald Trump was using to try to get money for his border wall. Joe Biden sent a letter to Congress late last week saying that no further tax dollars will be spent on the wall. Now, you might be wondering what but there was no wall. Trump promised a wall across the entire border. It never happened. What are we talking about here? That is true. But remember that Donald Trump declared a state of emergency over the southern border in 2019 that allowed him to use some military funding for construction of the wall. Now, the disastrous news is that Trump did manage to spend 25 billion on the project. The unfortunate it's sort of like a Pyrrhic victory that Donald Trump had because he was able to obtain money for the wall, but they were really able to do mostly some replacement of existing border wall areas with a new type of wall and expand it slightly. So as far as a campaign promise, Trump failed on having a wall across the entire border. That was his promise. He made it very, very clearly and said that was a first term accomplishment that he would have. Didn't happen. On the other hand, it's it's good news in the sense that not much of it took place. And Joe Biden is able to shut down this emergency uh, declaration of emergency and to stop pulling any more money from the military for the wall. Uh, this is the continued use of executive orders by Joe Biden to undo many of the disasters that Donald Trump did. Of course, much like debt and deficit, executive orders have become a political football. If your guy or gal is in power and using executive orders, then you say these executive orders are required and necessary to undo the damage of the previous president. Um, if your guy or gal is not in the Oval Office, then you call executive orders, at least if you're a Republican, a, um, a sort of authoritarian, tyrannical a circumvention of the normal legislative process. That's that's the way it's been for a while. It's pretty similar to the debt and deficit, uh, but it is a good thing that Joe Biden has been doing this, particularly when the Republican Party is more obstructionist, arguably, than it has ever been. Um, the exact numbers are that 80 miles of new barriers were built during the Trump administration where there were none. And otherwise, there were just replacements of existing parts of border wall or border fencing. So I think this is an important time to just remind you that we know a lot about what circumstances call for a wall and what circumstances do not. Um, one of the really interesting things is that even without the wall, remember, Trump only added 80 miles without a wall across the entire border, as promised by Trump. Um, Trump regularly claimed border crossings are lower than ever. 
So that's proof that it's if you believe that that's proof that it is not a wall that reduces border crossings. And of course, we've long studied the reasons why it is absurd to spend these ungodly amounts of money on a wall. We know that uh, and we've seen examples of being able to scale the wall with about one hundred dollars in parts from any hardware store, Home Depot, Lowe's, that type of place. Uh, it is easily defeated. Number two, uh, you have a significant portion of people who are in the United States uh, illegally who have overstayed visas or came for uh, tourism and never left. And they are mostly flying in, not crossing the physical border at the U.S. Mexico border. And then uh, lastly, if you want to think about the best ROI, the best return on investment for dealing with the issue of undocumented immigration, we really should be approaching this from why are people wanting to come to the United States to begin with? understanding the economic conditions in the source countries, not just Mexico, but further south as well, and working with those countries. And if we are supposed to be sort of agnostic to how the money is spent, as long as it effectively deals with the undocumented immigration problem, then you would think that the right would be open to the ideas of economists and others who have said, well, let's instead of building a wall that can be defeated and won't actually address a lot of the people that fly in and overstay visas or just never leave when they come for for vacation, let's actually spend money by improving economic circumstances in some of these source countries. Now, the, the problem is we know that for them, a big aspect of this is not just doing what's most effective. It's what doing what feels right based on their uh, framework of morality, as they would call it, or or maybe as we would describe it. And um, to them, it would seem wrong in some way to give money to improve a country when people are coming here illegally. It just doesn't feel right to the ideology that many of these right wingers are committed to. But study after study, as we've outlined in our long form piece about this issue, confirms that that actually would be the most effective way to curb undocumented immigration to the United States. So the micro story, Joe Biden has cut that emergency declaration. There is not even a mechanism with which you could pull money from the military to build the wall. Next step is Biden's got to deal with DACA. And it is finally time with Democrats controlling the White House, the House and the Senate. If it's not going to happen now, I don't know that it will ever happen. It's finally time to really do the immigration reform we've been talking about for. I mean, it's been 15 years or longer at this point. Send me your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. If you ever feel like you just don't have enough time to read all the books you want to read, you have to check out one of my favorite apps called Blinkist. Blinkist takes thousands of popular nonfiction books and distills each one down into an ebook or audiobook that you can get through in just 15 minutes where you're getting all the key takeaways from the book. Just imagine how you'll be able to expand your horizons and knowledge by being able to soak up all of the important insights from 10 different books in an afternoon. Obviously, it's perfect for exposing yourself to a new book you otherwise wouldn't have time for, or you can use it to revisit a book you've already read or use it to preview a book before you buy the full version and read it. 
I recently read a brief history of time, of course, by the great Stephen Hawking. This is a book that I have been aware of for so long and other things got in the way. And it was fantastic to check it out on Blinkist. Blinkist has books on politics, philosophy, science. They have 27 different nonfiction categories and a subscription is only about eight bucks a month and you get access to the entire library. But you can try it totally free and get 25 percent off a subscription when you go to Blinkist.com slash Pacman. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Pacman. One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration. And they're giving you 25% off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs, powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus, and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called hydrant immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25% off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout. That's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. The David Pakman Show as a show depends on people who like what we are doing enough to grab a membership at joinpakman.com. We also do a daily bonus show, an extra show every single day just for our members. I implore you to grab a membership at joinpakman.com and you can use the coupon code BETTER21 if you would like to uh, save some money off of the cost of a membership. We have a very interesting new poll uh, out of Quinnipiac University about whether Republicans want Donald Trump to remain involved in American politics and in Republican Party politics for the foreseeable future. And the answer is yes, they do. Yes, they do. Three quarters of Republicans want Donald Trump to continue playing a prominent role in the Republican Party. The poll showed 89 percent of Republicans opposed the conviction of Donald Trump in his Senate uh, second Senate impeachment trial. Um, 87 percent of Republicans say Trump should be allowed to hold public office in the future. Eighty nine percent of Republicans believe Trump was not responsible for inciting the violence that led to the January 6th riots. And among all Americans polled, 55 percent oppose Trump republic, uh, returning to public office. So this is a very important um, uh, number because we talked last week or the week before about 64 percent of Republicans saying if Trump left the party uh, and started his own party, 
we would follow him. Nearly two thirds of the Republican Party has such soft support for the party or has simply accepted Donald Trump as the sort of lord and savior deity head of the party at this point that they would follow him out of it. That's not so good for uh, the Republican Party as an institution, but it's certainly good if you're Donald Trump and you want to control the Republican Party or American politics going forward. Now we learn that although there are some Republicans who would not leave the Republican Party to follow Trump, many of them do want Trump to continue involved in American politics. Now, one important caveat is that we know from our conversation with David Shore a few weeks ago that Republicans who answer the phone and talk to pollsters are not necessarily representative of all Republicans. And, and David Shore believes that some of the more Trumpian QAnon conspiracy types may be refusing to participate in polls. Of course, pollsters try to and believe they have ways of accounting and adjusting for that. But David Shore was skeptical that they really are great at it. So that's something something to understand. But assuming these numbers are roughly accurate, this is really bad for Republicans as a party. They lost the presidential election by almost eight million people. And at this point in time, most of them want Trump to stay involved and two thirds are even willing to, to leave the party. I don't know how the math works out for them. And what I mean by that is if you lose a national election by eight million in great part because of the guy who's at the head of the party, Donald Trump, failing on coronavirus, turning off so many traditional Republicans, you lose by eight million. And then you want that guy to stay involved. And if he leaves the party, you'll leave with him. Those are not numbers that bode well for the Republican Party in national elections. Now, at the local level, it's a very different situation. You can still, you know, the, the Trumpian factor in extremely red areas that would never consider voting for, for example, a Democratic senator. It may in practice not have that big of an impact. But for as long as Donald Trump is so prominent, it looks really tough for uh, the Republican Party to win national elections. And I'm glad to have my mind changed, but I don't see how the numbers work out now as a matter of uh, sort of following the nature, the easy nature by which so many Republican voters were bamboozled by Donald Trump. They fell for the populist sounding rhetoric back in 2015 and 2016. We've talked about that many times. Yeah, they fell for it and then Trump didn't do it. But they still don't seem to realize that Trump has done nothing for just your average working class Republican beyond, yes, making them really afraid of others that are going to do bad things to you. China, undocumented immigrants, Democrats, communists, Marxists, anarchists or anarchists, as Donald Trump would call them. Yeah, he stoked fears for the average working class Republican really well. He told them lies about the things he would do, said he would fix trade. He didn't do it, said he would build a wall across the entire U.S.-Mexico border. He didn't do it, said he would replace Obamacare with a beautiful new health care plan. Didn't do it. So fear, false promises, uh, coalescing the most hateful elements of the Republican Party. But they still seem not to realize that he did nothing for them economically the way he claimed to do. And now, as we know, 40 percent of coronavirus deaths during the Trump administration 
were unnecessary and avoidable. So, of course, all of the numbers. Wow. How does the Republican Party win national elections in these circumstances? But the, the other question is millions, tens of millions still don't realize Trump didn't do any of the things he said he would do for the working class. Do they care? Do they not know? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer, but if they never wake up to it, support for Trump in the Republican Party is likely to continue. This is really funny just because of the, the, the hypocrisy in it. There's a guy who donated uh, more than two million dollars to that completely bogus true the vote campaign to try to take the election back from Joe Biden, despite the fact that Joe Biden won. And now one of these guys uh, wants his money back and says he's essentially been scammed. I'm talking about right wing rich dude Fred Eshelman. Fred Eshelman was convinced after the presidential election that something wasn't right with the results. And so he decided to donate a bunch of money to true the vote. He uh, called the group and said, I'm in for two million dollars. And over the next uh, couple of weeks that followed, Eshelman came to regret the donation, realized that all of these uh, conspiracy theories about rampant illegal voting deserved to be doubted. Yes, yes, they did. And now he wants his money back. And uh, Trump's campaign and the Republican Party in total collected more than a quarter billion dollars. That's two hundred and fifty five million dollars in two months. They said the money would go to legal challenges. They said the money would go to recounts and so on and so forth. Very little of the money did. Seventy six million that Trump raised for Georgia and for uh, reversing the results of the election didn't go to that. Instead, it went to paying off Donald Trump's campaign debts. And now at least some of these individuals are saying we got scammed and we want our money back. Now, Eshelman has filed two lawsuits. In one, uh, one in federal court has since been withdrawn. The other is still going on in Texas state court, and he is alleging they didn't spend the money on the things they were going to spend the money on. And I want the money back. And um, at this point, you know, th there's a couple different things that I think are relevant to talk about here. First of all, um, with these types of things. One should never invest more than they are willing to lose. I mean, it's not different than cryptocurrency in a sense. I've talked about I've held Bitcoin for, for years at this point, and I consider it speculative. I consider it part of uh, a small portion of my assets that I am putting in what I know to be risky assets. And if it ends up being worth zero, if I get nothing from it, that's sort of part of the game. Anybody who, quote, invested. And I think that that's absolutely the wrong term who invested money in this true the vote campaign. You should have gone in knowing this may go to nothing. I am not going in assuming or expecting that there are going to be tangible results here. Clearly, Fred Eshelman didn't do that because he was bamboozled by the conspiracy theory. So he was played by Trump and many of these people were played by Trump. Now, in terms of whether they deserve to get their money back, if you actually believed that this was anything short of a grift, then you clearly were not paying attention. And I, I do believe that some people like Fred Eshelman may not necessarily have thought that it was a scam, but they certainly might have felt that I'm a rich dude. If I throw enough money at a problem, 
something good is going to happen because that's how a lot of these rich people operate in the United States. It's just a matter of throwing enough money at it and I can get whatever I want. OK, maybe some of these claims are exaggerated, but if I give two million bucks, two and a half million people cough up two hundred and fifty million dollars. If you throw enough money at a problem, we're going to get the outcome that we want, because that's how a lot of these folks now have been conditioned. Uh, but in terms of getting the money back, a lot of these same people now alleging a scam and saying I'm filing suit and blah, 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 blah. They're the ones who say we can't have a nanny state government. We can't have a nanny state government protecting people from themselves. If people want to smoke, they should be allowed to smoke. If people want 128 ounce sodas. They should be allowed to have them and it shouldn't be priced a different way or banned or whatever the case may be. And now they're saying something different. Shouldn't by that same very same logic, they be allowed to donate money wherever they want. And then the outcome is the outcome. Caveat emptor buyer beware. No, now they have a different approach and I don't know ultimately what's going to happen in court, but it is amazing that, you know, there there might be this idea that the only people Trump was able to bamboozle were lower middle class, uneducated rural folks. No, no, no. That's very wrong. Trump also bamboozled uh, rich uh, upper class folks, and uh, we should never understate the ability of a grifter to grift lots of different people. We'll have more coverage of this on the show's Instagram page. You can find us on Instagram at David Pakman Show. We have a lot coming up today, including some really almost sad segments on Fox News last night, which we'll get to a little bit later today. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. One of our sponsors today is Nebbia, the creator of the world's most innovative showerhead. It uses only about half the water that other showerheads do, saving you money, helping the environment. But it's actually a lot more powerful than other showerheads on the market. It has twice the coverage of other showerheads. The water sprays with a ton of pressure. I've been using it in my bathroom at home. I love it. Only took a few minutes to set up really easy, and it's been a totally different experience than any other showerhead I've used. I can get in and out of the shower way quicker now because of how powerful it is. It only takes a few seconds to get completely rinsed off. So I was actually amazed that it's only using about half as much water. Nebbia also offers a number of shower accessories like shelves and curtains, which match perfectly with the design of the showerhead. The shower head is just one ninety nine, but you'll get 15 percent off when you go to nebbia.com slash Pacman pod and use coupon code Pacman pod. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash P-A-K-M-A-N-P-O-D and use coupon code Pacman pod for 15 percent off. And you can find the URL in the podcast notes. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19, and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you. 
And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. Welcome back to the David Pakman show. Today, we're going to be speaking to economist Ariel Rubinstein, professor of economics at Tel Aviv University and at New York University. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate speaking with you. My pleasure. So one of the two really two areas that are very much uh, in right now in economics are game theory and behavioral economics. And if one reads critiques of these areas, one of the things I read frequently is that as interesting as game theory and behavioral economics are to study uh, theoretically, that there is a limit to what these fields of study can tell us about the real world. Do you believe that this is a fair criticism? Uh, it's a very fair criticism, and I would sign on every word that you have said. Let me first of all say, you know, every area probably in the sciences and also as in life, as in fashion and in other things, in politics, then we have waves. And the waves are not because somebody discovered the light or discovered some uh, the, the corona, cured the corona. The wave is because some sort of social pressures inside the academic world. So when I was very young, then uh, what is called general equilibrium was dominating economics. Then actually I was a part of what is called again theoretical revolution in economics. And that became so fashionable that actually young uh, PhDs now almost don't know general equilibrium. And, uh, and the next wave was behavioral economics, and the next wave uh, is probably something which is very far from, from theoretical development. But in any case, this is first of all the fact that something is dominating a, a field inside economics does not mean that this is true. It is really mean. It does mean that it's dominating. It's also it should be it should be said that uh, economics is probably again as any other political uh, group is very much uh, there is a, there is a little bit a tyranny of the governing of the dominating field. And when some field is on top, then it's quite rejects the other fields. My position about economics, economic theory in general, that it's not about truth. It's not about truth. Nothing is true. It's a little bit like literature. You know, sometimes there is a fashion, one type of literature is more fashionable. Another time, another type of uh, literature is very fashionable. My attitude in general to general to uh, economic theory is that this is a bunch of stories, a bunch, of, if you want, a, a bunch of fables. 
Now, these fables are not completely disconnected from the world. They are connected with the world, but uh, remind you that also Disney fables are connected to the world. So it's connected to the world. It's about the world in some sense, but not in the direct way that people think uh, or, or many people take it. Um, now, regarding uh, continuing in this line, when we think about game theory, you know, I spent much of my life uh, uh, doing game theory. Um, uh, I don't do game theory anymore, I should say. I moved from game theory to boundary nationality, and then these days I'm doing things which are more connected to general equilibrium than to game theory. Um, and that's not because I was I was disilluded from game theory. I've never believed, I've never understood uh, that game theory is some concrete lesson to uh, or message to the world. And whenever people, and some of them are very respectable people that I admire on their academic achievements, try to claim that game theory tells something about politics, about life, about religion or whatever, I feel very angry, I should say. Do you think, though, that over time we will get closer to economic theory that really does tell us more or is 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 more highly applicable in the real world? And I guess the the idea would be we had this initial school of economics that was based on perfectly rational actors. And then over time we learned, OK, that's not exactly the way things work. Let's introduce behavioral economics, which at least claimed to get closer to accounting for the psychology of the real world and maybe gets us a little closer. Do you think over time we will get closer and closer? No, you don't No, no, no not in the means that categorically not in the means that we work on. Now, of course, it may be the case that uh, in, uh, in one point of time, I, in some sense, I hope that it's after I will I will go from this world that the world will be so different that there will be some that that we will um, the, the way to model uh, David or Ariel would not be in the way the formal way or the abstract way that we do it but it will be we will we people think will think about us indeed as machines really machines as a sort of a collection of uh, of atoms or a collection of cells that somehow interact in some uh, way and people will some will understand and decode it and then we will stop to be David and Ariel we will be some sort of uh, organisms in the world and then the world will be so much different than the world that we live in that you know the question of whether economic theory will do the work or not is completely unimportant uh, it, it will be completely, I cannot imagine such a world. Now, I cannot say that it's impossible, you know, who I am, I'm not a scientist, I'm an early economist, so I am to say that that's impossible one day. But I, I personally, I, in, in, in uh, continuing more or less developing the theories, even making, making them more empirically, uh, in some sense, uh, relevant, uh, I don't think that we are uh, as close because, uh, and, and again, the analogy is the analogy of literature. Uh, do you believe that one day there will be a book that in some sense will explain uh, the world in a perfect way that whoever will read it will say, wow, now I understand the politics of the US and I predict the, the elections in, uh, in uh, 2024? I, maybe <laughs> I, 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 cannot, I, I cannot imagine something like that. You, you mentioned bounded rationality, and I want to talk about that a little bit, maybe for the people in our audience who are less familiar with some of these concepts in general, when we talk about rationality, 
in economics, what do we mean? And then what do you mean when we talk about more specifically bounded rationality? Uh, well, the way that I mean bounded rationality, I mean I, that in the story, namely what we call a model in our language, but it's I think about it just a story. There is a concrete element of the procedure aspect of decision making. That's all. Uh, when we talk about uh, rational models with rationality, actually we also have a sort of a procedure, but the procedure is in some sense perfect in some logical sense. People can do whatever calculations, they fully understand the probabilistic laws, and they, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, when people are limited, and all of us are limited, and we take it into account, or we put it, we don't take it into account, we more, it, I think about it more that we put it explicitly into the model that there are some aspects of bounded rationality, then it's become a model of bounded rationality. That's all. That's all. But of course, in the interpretation of what we do, this is a big step. It's a big step because it's uh, it makes some of the results or many of the results that are um, uh, common in the model when we assume full rationality uh, different. That's all. So would, would, it, would it be fair to say just, that would it be fair to say that rationality as a broad concept is a more yes. theoretical concept? Bounded rationality accounts no, for the real world fair. limits of rationality. I don't know. I, you know, if you take, you know, the, the, the example that I often give is the, again, the characters in Disney, in Disney movies. Yes. The characters in Disney movies are usually are very simple in the sense that either they are good or bad, right? It's either they're evil or uh, tzaddik. That's uh, there are two ex uh, extremes. And now we can think about the way that people are either there is some sort of a click in their minds, a zero one, either they are good or bad. That's the end of the story. And then still there are interactions between many good and bad people in different situations. Now we can complicate it and think about the situation is more uh, more uh, evolved and more includes some sort of uh, uh, between between being good and bad are many colors and between being fully rational and being completely random there is also a lot of uh, varieties and uh, when we are interested in the way or that uh, this procedural aspect affect the the interaction between human beings then it becomes a bound rationality. Now, is it closer? I don't like to think about it closer. I think that uh, it's different. And uh, again, closer under, behind your assumption, there is, there is this uh, goal, which is that economic theory will be uh, will predict the world, mm. uh, will be will fit the, the description of the world as close as possible. I personally, I must say, I've never wanted to predict anything. I don't want to predict. I I, I, I I want to I want to to do interesting story to write uh, to invent uh, interesting stories full stop. What the f interesting stories will do to the world? Well, you know there are some interesting stories that were written by people much more uh, uh, famous than me that uh, really changed the world. And, uh, and 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 I don't think that the type of models that we uh, deal with will change the world. They, they, they at most they affect the way that economists or politi or people who are doing social sciences or think about social sciences or person like you 
uh, would think about uh, about the world. But this is in a very indirect way. The influence is exactly, in my opinion, almost exactly like literature. Probably the difference is that there, that there is. I don't think that when people read a, a novel, they uh, they. But they have expectations that everything will be correct, exact, describe the world, and so mm. on. On the other hand, also the influence of, of course, there are some writers who were becoming prime ministers and presidents and so on. But most of the writers do not do whatever they do in, in, in a direct relation to politicians or to people who do public affairs. The difference between, uh, in this respect, between uh, writers and, and economists is that there is, I think that most of the people, including many of my friends, economists, and definitely people who think about economics and people who write in uh, the Wall Street Journal or in the economic section in newspapers and so on, approach economists with expectations that they will uh, tell them things which are very, very useful. Now, uh, now, you know, some people believe that economics, of course, is much more useful in the direct sense than me. And I, you know, I think that the burden of proof is on them, not on me. Um, I, it's not my goal. I never gave, I've never given any advice to anybody and I'm not going to give advice. That's fair. Stop, so, so putting aside for a moment the idea of, of predictive utility, can you talk maybe about some examples of situations that we can maybe better understand by understanding bounded rationality? What types of real world, real world, world problems might we better understand under this umbrella? Uh, to be honest, it's a very you ask me now a very tough question. I, I don't think that I can. It would be charlatanic move for me now to, in a few minutes, to, to say, okay, here is an example, such and such. I, when I was doing more game theory and I was asked many times the same question, so probably I was, I fell into the trap and answered this question hmm. with some examples. And when I ended the interview or whatever, then I felt, oh, come on, again, I did this mistake. And nobody understood and the, and the, and the, and the, what I meant. And the, Look, the economic theory, in many respects, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a study of the way that economists think, and it's very difficult, and sometimes it's very dangerous to transfer the terms directly in the public. By the way, that's the success you mentioned the behavioral economics. The big success, the public success of behavioral economics, is because behavioral economists have a very direct. A communication with the public. Why they have a very direct way? Because actually many of the examples and the stories that they can tell are very simple and actually makes a lot of sense and many of them are not very great academic achievements, but it is just common sense. And, uh, and therefore, you know, you can give a speech about uh, behavioral economics and people will be very excited because they will feel that actually they understand the lecture and actually they feel probably that they themselves knew some of the stuff that is told and so on. I mean, is that is that a, that's an important bias maybe to understand, right? The idea that that which can be more easily understood, people may be more likely to believe it is accurate, but that may not be the case. That's, it's not not only uh, the, uh, you see behavioral economics. One of the big effects in the last uh, few years is what is called uh, let's me call it the nudge movement. The nudge movement is almost a political movement these days. It's uh, those of the listeners that 
they don't know what it is. It is uh, some uh, very respectable uh, economists and uh, not only economists, lawyers and other fields believe that uh, what is called liberta libertarian paternalism, namely we don't want to force people to, to take the vaccination. Let's say uh, that's an issue now in Israel, but uh, we don't want to force them and it will be legal to force them, but we can uh, nudge them. To, to, to do it, and yes. uh, they study some ways that we will nudge them more effectively. Now, uh, behind this, uh, behind this, of course, there is the, the, the yeah, there is a lot of uh, debates in the last few years about the, the philosophical stat status of libertarian paternalism. Personally, I'm very much against this movement because of many reasons. Uh, one of them that I believe that people uh, now it's not it's not connected with economics, it's just uh, my personal views. I believe in the, the, the personal responsibility to a person, and I also believe that uh, clever people or people or economists or uh, scholars who believe that they are very clever don't know what is good to other people more than the people themselves. And I feel that uh, manipulation on people, I dismay a lot that people, even with the best uh, intention uh, manipulate other people to do something i feel that it's for me it is a operation which is immoral in almost almost all uh, operations so, so in a sense in a sense to, uh, Ariel. Which is the, the questions about uh, libertarian paternalism and not actually i think that has very little to do with with academic research these are ideas that we can discuss uh, in 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 in, the bar, in a bar or in afternoon uh, or in the in evening dinner or over a table and uh, discuss them and, and and probably you will have some insights as a person who is connected with human beings not less than many of the scholars of of, of behavioral economics. So I think that, uh, again, it's not that behavioral economics does not have any interesting stories. It has. But the, but the, the pretension of behavioral economics to be more uh, realistic and more, and especially the, 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 the move, the, which is almost a political move, that you are trying to claim we know how to do something and we actually are behind the scenes actually manipulate other people in the name of academic uh, ideas, I, I, I personally dismay it from any angle that I can think about. We've been speaking with Ariel Rubinstein, who is professor of economics at Tel Aviv University and at New York University. Uh, professor, such a pleasure speaking with you today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. A lot of the shirts you see me wearing on YouTube are actually made by a company called Teddy Stratford. I love these shirts, and that's why I asked them to be a sponsor of the show. It really is the most innovative shirt you can buy. Because most slim fit button up shirts give you this weird stretched out gap in the chest where the buttons are. You don't get that with the Teddy Stratford shirts because all of their shirts come with a patented zipper hidden beneath the buttons, which prevents the chest from stretching apart like that. But most importantly, just overall, it makes the shirt fit much better and look better. The carefully designed shirt is also cut in a way that improves the look of your upper body physique. It has a really nice, elegant, close fit that other shirts don't really give you. It also has a specially designed collar that won't fall down and lay flat, which I love. 
The difference all around with these shirts really is noticeable. Go check them out at davidpackman.com slash Teddy. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 15% off your first order if you use the coupon code Pacman at checkout. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. The David Pacman Show at davidpackman.com. So you really have to see this. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. is so desperate for time on air, but also desperate for opportunities to talk about how his beloved father, the former president, is just so liked by everyone that he went on Sean Hannity's Fox News program last night on which there were multiple segments about a group of people that came out in Florida with Trump flags to cheer Donald Trump on President's Day as Donald Trump drove, I guess, from golfing back to his resort or something like that. And this as I was watching this, I actually almost felt slightly sorry for Don Jr., who, of course, is just so desperate to be liked by his dad, but so desperate to try to keep the party going, for lack of a better term. Check this out. First, you're going to see a clip here of Sean Hannity claiming that this group of several it appears to be several hundred Trump supporters spontaneously appeared to cheer on Trump as he returned from golfing. Now, if you watch the video, you're going to notice people with gigantic flags like eight foot, 10 foot flags. These are not things you can say, oh, Trump's going to drive through. I'll just pop into 7-Eleven and get a 10 foot don't tread on me or MAGA or MAGA or Trump flag. You have to plan for this stuff. The police cordons clearly were organized ahead of time. Anyway, nothing about it seems spontaneous. But here's Hannity saying, look at this spontaneous thing that just uh, popped up. This very day. Take a look right there. See that video? See what's on your screen? A few hours ago, spontaneously, thousands of people in Palm Beach lined up in support of the former president as his motorcade traveled through Florida. Um, I have a question, Mitch McConnell, John Thune. How come you've never had this kind of enthusiasm at any of your events? Take a look. A defiant Sean Hannity there saying, hey, listen, a senator like John Thune, barely known to anybody, never had people with flags cheering them like a former president of the United States. What a kind of strange flex that is. But anyway, then that's not all, because in comes Don Jr. to talk about the, quote, totally organic parade of flag bearing Trumpists that appeared. Uh, take a look at this. When you look at your dad coming back from golf. Did you see thousands of people out of nowhere? Nobody, nobody organized it that I could see. No, certainly nobody associated with your father that I know of. Do you? Uh, no, I mean, this is totally organic. And again, it just shows that the American people are with Donald Trump. Uh, those millions of people, Sean, I saw it all day. I put up a separate video even to the one that you posted earlier. Now, that's it's actually really funny how Hannity hedges. Nobody organized thousands of people and a police presence. Well, no one associated with your father anyway. And I guess what Sean Hannity means is that Trump didn't organize it himself. OK, and Don Jr. really seems to be struggling with the math there. And you kept you kept hearing this during the impeachment trial. Actually, the disenfranchisement 
of 74 million people who voted for Trump, a few hundred or even a thousand people getting out to support someone in a country of 330 million people. When Joe Biden got millions more votes than Donald Trump, what mathematical significance do a few hundred or even a thousand people have now on the facts? They're, of course, lying to you. There was nothing organic or spontaneous about this event. It was President's Day yesterday. People came from relatively far away from the for this. They drove with their flags and people knew about the event starting at least a week before it was being promoted. There was nothing coincidental about it. Here's one advertisement for the event from Right Side Broadcasting Network starting to promote this well in advance. They even say bring your flags. Those flags you can't just stop in a 7-Eleven or a Walmart and get an 8-foot Trump flag. You've got to plan ahead. And what's more sad, I mean listen, there's a, there's a lot of sad stuff going on here. One thing is like they always have to go further. They could just go with there was great turnout on President's Day for Donald Trump. Okay, all right. Well, a few hundred supporters came out. That's great. Why do you have to say it was spontaneous and it just popped up out of nowhere? Like it's completely unbelievable. Obviously, it didn't pop out of nowhere. But maybe what's more sad is that Donald Trump Jr. is desperate not just for relevance. But he's so desperate for dad's approval. And that is, you know, we this is a cycle that repeats itself. We don't have to get all psychological, but Donald Trump was desperate for his dad's approval and his dad treated him terribly. And that's where a lot of Trump's complex comes from. And it seems to be repeated exactly between Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. It's all sad, quite frankly, Uh, but it is what it is, as they say. And Uh, Hopefully this will at some point kind of wind down. Hey, so listen, this is not the most important story, but we all need a little comedic relief every once in a while. And last night on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show, guest after guest lost their connection. And I don't know why, but I just found it hilarious. I think part of it is the look on Tucker Carlson's face every time his guests would lose connection. Now, I want to be really, really clear. Texas is having power outages right now. One of the guests who loses their Internet connection is former Republican Governor Rick Perry and Tucker Carlson mentions him being in Texas. Now, I don't know if the storms are actually the reason Rick Perry loses Internet and all of his guests, even the ones not in Texas, were losing connection. So it may have nothing to do, but we are not making light of what is happening in Texas right now. People without power. Okay, that's not what this is about. I think what's funny is Tucker doing his confused face every time it happens. So if you're only listening, that will be an element that you won't be able to observe unless you take a look at the video versions of this. But let's jump right into it. Here is former Texas governor, former Trump administration, secretary of energy, Rick Perry, losing his connection. And Tucker tries to at least blame it on Rick's connection, although I doubt whether that's what's going on. Let's take a look. So I I love Texas. Don't want to attack Texas. On the other hand, the most basic responsibility of government, you'd think, is to keep the power on, especially when people need it to survive. They didn't. Why? Hmm. I I should say that Rick Perry is in Texas. It sounded like he was in space, but he's not. He's in Texas. He has no power. That's being run, I think, on a generator. He's proving the point that we're making 
Governor, we're going to put you on hold for a second to see if we can get the power back on in your state. Okay, so maybe it's the storms there, but then in comes Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican governor who was going on Tucker's show to brag about how they're just opening it wide open in Florida. Uh, regardless of the virus, and he loses his connection. Now, at this point, you can't blame the power outages in Texas for Ron DeSantis losing his connection. Can you take a look? And ever says that out loud. I mean, how could you ignore something that the data them. show? Oh, I'm afraid we've lost Governor DeSantis. Can, can you hear me, Governor? I can't hear. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I can hear the governor. He cannot hear me. I just want to say for the record that unlike as in Texas tonight, I think the power is still on in Florida. Fewer windmills uh, in the state than there are in Texas. So that's the good news. But for some reason, the governor couldn't hear us. We'll be back in just a moment. A lot going on. I, I was having a grand old time rewatching these this morning. It's also very poetic that a connection was lost because these are two people, Rick Perry, and Ron DeSantis, who lost their connections with reality a long time ago. And I would actually argue that this was Ron DeSantis's best public statement ever, just losing his connection and being unable to say anything. He came off looking way better than he normally does when he's able to speak. And notice Tucker Carlson throwing in a dig at wind farms there, sort of laughing at windmills. And I think the idea there is that Tucker wants to frame Anybody relying on wind farms can't possibly be keeping the power on compared to burning fossil fuels, which I guess is seen as manly and alpha among the American right. No opportunity to attack clean energy that Tucker Carlson won't avail himself of. And I mean, listen, being Texas, I'd almost expect Tucker to blame the power outages or the loss of connection on some migrant caravan approaching the border, which seems to be a catch all anytime they need to blame anybody for anything, maybe even Antifa. But uh, many tech problems happening on Tucker Carlson's program last night. I don't know why I was laughing to myself this morning. Just really, really got a kick out of that one. Uh, we have a voicemail number. That number is two one nine two David P. Uh, we got a voicemail late last week about this new March 4th thing. There are QAnon people who I, I don't even know that I can say they believe it. They are saying maybe they believe it. QAnon people are now saying that through some kind of bizarre technicality, Donald Trump is going to resume his presidency on March 4th. And I said, isn't this in some sense mental illness, delusional in, in a way? And a caller left me a voicemail saying it is. But there's also some of that on the left. Let's take a listen. The latest March 4th QAnon thing, let's call it what it is. It's mental illness. OK, but the Democrats are also guilty of having mental illness. They think this is the Wizard of Oz, where at some point, the Republicans are going to discover that they had a brain the whole time. They had courage the whole time. They had conscience the whole time. They just didn't know it, right. but it was there all along. Well, guess what, Alice? That's never going to happen because they don't have courage. They don't have conscience and they don't have a brain. And this March 4th babble is mental illness. And I would propose that to give it any media attention at all 
even on, admittedly, an anti-QAnon YouTube progressive channel, mm. still gives it a voice that it doesn't deserve. All right. So there is a big admonishment there. But no, I think that the, the, the what I what I completely agree with is, you know, throughout the Trump president for law for decades, honestly, it happened during George W. Bush. It kept happening. But certainly during the Trump presidency, there would be the sense where, oh, 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 th this is too much. Even the Trumpian lunatics aren't going to defend this. Clearly, Republican senators are now going to say this is too far. And of course, it never happened. And it is, in a sense, insanity to keep repeating the same expectation absent any evidence that should make us think this is too far. This is too low even for Republicans to think. No, it never is. It never is. And I do think that that's an important, uh, important takeaway. And uh, the caller is absolutely right on the bonus show today. House impeachment managers are defending their decision not to call witnesses in the Trump impeachment trial after they voted to call witnesses. That's one story. Number two, Joe Biden is launching a review of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center, and he is planning to close it before leaving office. We're still doing this. Yes, we're still talking about closing Gitmo. Maybe Joe Biden can get it done. And Parler is back again. It's like the website that just won't die. Parler is back again. We'll talk a little bit about the latest iteration and uh, what uh, impact it's having on the conservative dialogue, I guess we would call it. All of those stories and more on today's bonus show. Get instant access by becoming a member at joinpacman.com. I'll see you then.